I have been told by a doctor to keep less pressure on my foot. And people wonder about why I've got crutches with me. And I wish I could tell you it's because you missed a great, crazy night last night down at SummerCon. Truth of the matter is, um, I was jumping at the Extreme Air Trampoline Park on Thursday and bounced off a wall and did not land back on my feet properly. And so one of my foots got twisted, sprained, I don't know what you call it. Um, and yesterday when I woke up, I could not exactly stand. So, um, crutches and a seat. Um, speaking about the truth, let's turn this over to the author of truth in a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for Sunday, the beginning of a new week, the opportunity to once again realign ourselves and our lives to recognize your lordship and your godship over us. Lord, we pray that you will open our hearts to hear your message and apply it to us in whichever way that it you see fit. In Jesus' name, amen. Today, uh, I would like for us to look over Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. It's a short passage, but it talks about a very, very long story. Um, Romans chapter 4 is where Paul talks to the people of, in Rome uh, about Abraham, the sometimes known as the father of faith, um, sometimes simply known as Father Abraham. Uh, you might have grown up hearing a particular song called Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had father. Yeah, no? Okay. Romans 4. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, he was talking to the Jews, discovered in this matter. If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Verse 4. Now to one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. The story of Abraham is something that we hear when we grow up in church. Um, we're very familiar with it because it's one of the first ones in the Bible that takes many, many, many chapters. Um, Abraham is uniquely regarded in the Bible um, because it, he is regarded by three major religions in our world today. Um, 
these religions are monotheistic, meaning they believe in one God. They are Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Collectively, they're known as the Abrahamic religions. They are... All three religions trust that... link their history back to Abraham. Abraham was their beginning. Um, where it goes from there, splits. Um, in our context, we know that Abraham was first of three patriarchs of Israel. Um, so one of the ways that God was identified was the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, his sons. Even Jesus identified God in this way in Matthew 22. So, let's go into a little bit about who Abraham was. He was not always known as Abraham. Somebody tell me who his, what his name was before his name was Abraham. Uh, <coughs> Abram, son of Terah, and he was from a place called Ur. Um, not Erm. But you know, Ur. Uh, God told him to go to Canaan, away from his father's house, away from his homeland. And his response was very simple: "Okay, I'll go." So he went. Now, even then, God gave him a promise that He would multiply him in that place. And so Abraham or Abram at that time. Uh, believed and trusted in God and said, I believe that you will fulfill your promise. So that's why he went. At one point in Canaan, he, there was an issue with not having good food supply. And so he went down to Egypt. And there's the story of him uh, telling the Egyptians that his wife was his sister, which was a half-truth. Uh, she was his half-sister. Um, and through that episode, uh, he acquired a lot of wealth, a lot of property. Um, after that, he went back into Canaan, and he had his nephew Lot with him uh, for most of the time, but sometimes they separated. Um, and sometimes he had to go save him. And there are all sorts of stories. If you read like the middle chunk of Genesis, there's a huge section all about Abraham because he went through all these little things. Uh, there were the multiple covenants that God had with Abram, uh, promising Abram his own children, even though he was old and his wife was barren. Uh, they could not have children. Uh, but Abram believed that God would do it. And so he continued to follow in God's uh, teaching and, and just living life according to how God wanted him to live and where God wanted him to live. It was then that he was noted as being credited with righteousness. That is, he was justified before God. Now, note that I've already mentioned he lied, um, which would be, you know, a naughty thing to do. Uh, 
lying is not something that God wants us to do, and yet he did that, and yet, because he believed and trusted in God, God already credited him with righteousness. Uh, during those times, he had to go save Lot, and he was a military man. He actually led his group, tribe of people, his servants and whatnot, and would go out and uh, kill a bunch of people and saved his nephew back from them. Uh, there's a lot of different stories about him uh, dealing with various kings and other tribes. Um, so he was a murderer. Um, and yet, because he had faith in God, it was credited to, to him as righteousness. Um, now, it's not to say that Abraham had perfect steadfast faith, that he did not waver. That's not true. We are told, for example, that uh, his wife uh, had, uh, was barren, and as they approached the, the age of 100, you can imagine that they really had no expectation of children. And yet, uh, because they had this promise from God, they tried to go around, go around it and try to figure out how this was going to happen in their own way. One of the traditions and the ways that things were done back then was that Abraham's wife, Sarah, gave Abraham uh, her maidservant, Hagar, to be his wife. And through her, Ishmael was born. And he is now the, the forefather of the Arabs. Now, the story of that is also an example of somewhat a mistrust, perhaps. Trying to go about it in solving God's problems in man's own way. But God came back to them and multiple times again said, no, 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 that doesn't count. That's not the way it's going to happen. So, once again, in Genesis 17, we have the covenant of the circumcision. It's at this time that Abram becomes Abraham because he is going to become the father of many. And even at this time, his son, who is not yet even conceived, was already named to be going to be named Isaac. And the covenant that God set was already destined for him. Later, we have another visit of three visitors that came to Abraham. Um, there's been different speculation about this whether or not uh, these were angels or maybe it was the three persons of the Trinity. Um, whatever the case, it was, uh, these were representatives of God and spoke with Abraham and again stated the birth of Isaac. Now, these guys actually get up, the three of them, and they actually then go over to Sodom. They walk towards Sodom. Two of them are the ones that go into Sodom and have the episode with Lot. And one of them is noticed 
noticeably standing there outside of Sodom looking upon the city, noticing the sin of the city, and having a discussion with Abraham. And this is where Abraham has a very interesting conversation. I don't know that we wouldn't necessarily dare to have such a conversation. He actually pleaded, pleaded with God, the, the, the third of the three visitors, um, over the city of Sodom. And he had this conversation of saying, what if there are 50 righteous people in there? Would you destroy it then? And God's saying, fine, no, 50, I'll let, them, I'll let it go. What if there are 40? Oh, fine, 40, I'll let that go. And it goes down until he says, what about if there are only 10? And God's still saying, okay, Abraham, if there are 10, I will spare them. It's not every day that people can think of their position where they can speak to God in that manner, where there is mutual respect and dialogue. I think that tells us something about the relationship between Abraham and God and how intimate it actually was. Now, Isaac was born to Abraham and Sarah when he was 100 and she was 90. In Genesis 22, we see that Abraham is tested. And the test of Abraham, where we start calling him the father of faith, is because Isaac was his only son born of Sarah. So it's his first wife, main wife, first son, only son. And the one who will carry the family name. And God says, go over to, mount, to that mountain over there and sacrifice your son to me. Now, this would be somewhat problematic, perhaps. There were, it was common amongst other people in the area, in Canaan, to sacrifice their children to their deities. Um, that wasn't so much strange, but when Abraham thought about it, God already promised his covenant, to go be through Isaac. Now, how, how is he supposed to kill his own son? Not that, he, not that it wasn't just the issue of, I love my son, but how am I supposed to kill the one that everything is supposed to, all the promises are supposed to be through? So in Hebrews 11, we actually get an interesting statement about Abraham. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. That is to say, it made logical sense that even if he did kill Isaac and sacrifice him to God, Isaac would still somehow live, be resurrected, because it was through Isaac that the promise must be fulfilled. That is something that God had already said, and God had said three times before. 
Using logic, he reasoned that God would be faithful to his promise. And he trusted and believed in God. Now, I'm using specific words. I'm using the words promise, trust, and believe. In their different forms, these words are very similar in, the, in some other various languages. Uh, we, I tried to think about this even last night as I was discussing this sermon, um, that in even Cantonese, you could arguably translate all of these to the same term, sung sung. That is to say that the concepts of promise, trust, and believe are in fact very, very closely connected. So if you want to interchange them, you might find very interesting sentences. For example, you believe in God. You believe that he is trustworthy and faithful to his word. You have faith that God is trustworthy. You have faith, belief. You trust that he is faithful. You can mess with that. Now, what is the problem with our own world today? We live in a world that doesn't want to believe in God. It doesn't believe in God. Um, most of the time when we talk to people and they say, I don't believe in God, is it that they don't believe that God exists? Or is it that they don't want to believe that God exists? Because the implications of God existing would change everything. God existing means that I can't be God. God existing means that I cannot make all the decisions. God existing means there is a higher order. There are laws. There are rules. There are definitions of right and wrong that I don't get to control. And that's something our world doesn't like anymore. In the past, we had, for example, Martin Luther, who was the starter of the Reformation. His issue was that he was very, very, very afraid of being in the hands of an angry God. Incidentally, that became a famous title for a sermon by another man, Jonathan Edwards. But the concept of a righteous God that was angry at people because of their sin was in the mindset of many Christians before us. In today's world, we don't want that God to exist. And in some cases, we don't need Him to exist. Um, there's, a, there's a method of evangelism that is sometimes taught in churches called evangelism explosion. Um, and the classic question from that is, if you were to die today and arrive at the gates of heaven and God asked, why should I let you in? What would your answer be? Unfortunately, today, that answer sometimes is, well, I'm dead, aren't I? Um, yes, you're dead, but that doesn't mean you automatically qualify. 
people in our heads, we believe that I'm a good person. I didn't, I'm not a murderer. I didn't lie, lie, cheat, steal. You know, I never went to prison. Why should I not be able to go to heaven? Now, let me quote you what Paul quotes. In Romans 4, verses 7 and 8, it's actually David's Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. You notice that it it doesn't say, blessed is the one who never sinned. I mean, granted, the one who never sinned would be Jesus, and He is blessed, He is God. But it doesn't say that we need to be sinless to be blessed. In fact, it is we who are forgiven of our sins, where our transgressions, any kind at all, are forgiven. I'm talking about taking money out of the piggy bank of your sibling. I'm talking about uh, how my mom used to stash coins in the closet and I took them so that I could buy you know, uh, fish balls. That's cool. Um, little things. White lies. Uh, you know, you're trying to be kind to someone and you don't want to say that, you know, your hair's ugly. Um, these are small things. But they all stem from a basic concept of I know better and I'm going to say untruth or I'm going to do unrighteous things even though I know that there's a better and correct way to do it. We are sinners and we carry guilt and baggage from our past. It's interesting to read about uh, various pastors' experiences where people have come up to them and told them about how they... uh, were responsible for the death of another person 40 years in the past. It's interesting to read about uh, various stories where uh, people have, they have guilt over having had an abortion 30 years ago. These are facts of life that occur. And while they might have been wrong in the past, note David's Psalm. Note how Paul recites it here again in Romans. Blessed are the ones whose transgressions are forgiven. That's the good news, is that we are forgiven. Other things we've done. Here's just a random list that I came up with. Small things, a lie here, a cheat there. I didn't give a full tithe. That would be 10% people. Did I look at a woman with impure thoughts? Did I hate someone for whatever reason? 
if we remember what Jesus said, the issue of looking at a woman with impure thoughts or hating someone was the same as adultery and murder. It really isn't a scale of lesser sins and worse sins. Sin is sin. It's all the same in the sight of God. It's wrong. It's unrighteous. It cannot be tolerated. But do you know who else was guilty of these things? Our guy who wrote the psalm, King David. He was both an adulterer and a murderer. Over the same issue, but nonetheless, he did it all. And yet, he wrote this psalm saying, forgiven of transgressions, those are the ones that are blessed. The ones whose sins are covered. The one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. This forgiveness, of course, is available to you and me as well. But let us note that it is also not earned by works. We cannot do it on our own. Religions of all kinds outline ways to please their gods. For example, if you were to come to church every Sunday and check off all the right boxes and say that, yes, I, I, I have been here three times a year, four times a year, maybe 52 times a year. That would be every Sunday. And yet, I did not have a direct relationship with God. What do you expect? Do you expect that perfect attendance will earn you the right into, into I don't know, shall we call it Valhalla? It's, it's in, it doesn't matter. It's not even... You're not in relationship to God. He's not going to put you with Him. He doesn't know you. Even Christian religion is, has done the same thing. It doesn't have to be some other religion of... I don't know. There, I, I was recently introduced to the idea of there's a Vancouver Buddhist church it's not a Christian church that's also Buddhist. It's actually just Buddhism, and they have pews and a stage, and it looks very much like this. Um, Islam is similar. Uh, many religions. You go and you pray to, a, to an idol, and you pray that they will bless you in whatever endeavor that you have. And then you will, in return, do something that will appease that God. But Paul actually addressed that, didn't he? Because in verse 4 we can go back and see, now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. If I do something for a God and He then blesses me, what is this, a transaction? Is that what's going on? It's not a gift. But the thing about Christianity, true, proper Christianity, is that God gave His Son as a free gift to you. In other words, you don't do anything to earn that. 
you can afterwards be very joyful and want to dedicate your life to God. That's a great thing. But it's not the same as you trying to work your way and earn what He has already given to us for free. When we look at examples in the Bible, we find that those that are assured of salvation are not actually religious leaders, typically, but rather people who lived in right relationship to God. King David, psalmist, adulterer, murderer, known as the man after God's own heart. Interesting, isn't it? That he was a man after God's own heart. He was looking for God in everything that he was doing. He was always trying to be right with God. He praised God. He, uh, he danced naked in the streets when people thought it was crazy. But he was always trying to find ways to be right with God. When the prophet Nathan came to him and exposed him to his adulterous relationship and his murdering, his immediate response was to tear his clothes off in a sign of remorse and immediately prayed and said that he had sinned before God. That is the type of relationship he had. He, once he was once he realized what he had done, he immediately, first reaction was, Oh God, I am so sorry. Um, Abraham, our original title character, uh, similarly had a great relationship with God. We're talking about someone you could... They, they were having these conversations about whether or not God was going to destroy the city based off of how many people were in it that were righteous. What does that sound like? Abraham was known as a friend of God. What a title. Friend of God. Not just God's servant, God's uh, you know, favorite person on the planet. Friend of God. Not God's, not, not, it, it's not so much the other way around. It's not as if God was friendly to Abraham. It's that God saw Abraham as his friend. Now, this section of Romans is oftentimes considered the section we call uh, justification by faith. What is it that faith does. Um, if we look into some of the Greek, which I will do for you because I took a class. Um, <laughs> Greek, when it says diapistios, uh, which uh, could be translated as because of faith or on account of faith, um, the problem with that is that the, the grammatical term doesn't work with that. So we can't be, it's not because of faith 
or on account of having faith that we have salvation. Rather, in the genitive form, this word dia means by or through. That is to say that faith is the channel to faith, uh, to salvation, not the grounds of salvation itself. Salvation is given to us by God, and He gives it to us through, by the channel of our faith in Him. When we trust God to be true to His promises, and His promise is to give us salvation. To be in right relationship, Abraham trusted God to be faithful. Now remember, Abraham lived before Christ came, so it was before Christianity. Abraham lived before his son Israel, the father of the Jews, which was far before Moses, which was the lawgiver. So it was all before Judaism and the law. How then could he be saved? He trusted God. He trusted God to be faithful. God gave him promises. He said, God's, God's word's good. I believe him. It's like... Anyway. Um, let me go through some examples of various people who, who dealt with God and you could see their trust and their belief that God was going to be trustworthy. Jacob wrestled with God. And when he wrestled with him all the way till dawn, God said, let me go. And Jacob said, no, I won't until you bless me. And God said, okay, fine. I w what is your name? And at that point, Jacob's name is then changed by God. God says, your name will no longer be Jacob. Your name will now be Israel, for you have wrestled with God. And even in that interaction, once again, you see this... I mean, would you dare to hold on to God's ankle or arm or whatever it was and say, hey, you got to bless me first. Moses he made all sorts of excuses. He was talking to God at the burning bush and said, uh-uh, I can't speak. Um, no, I, I, I walk bad or, you know, I, I, I don't know what to do. What if they don't trust me? What if they don't believe me? You know, I, I, I murdered a guy back there and all this sort of stuff. And God, God said, no, I will provide for you. And ultimately, Moses said, okay then, I'll go. When Moses spoke uh, or met God face to face on Mount Sinai when he got the Ten Commandments, who does that? Who, who, who dares to walk up to God and do these things? And yet, that's the kind of relationship they had. David, I already told you. Daniel got thrown into a lion's den. Absolute trust that God was going to save him either physically or not. He was trusting God 
with everything that he was. He was going to pray to God three times a day, regardless of the law. Peter denied Jesus. He knew, he had already recognized that Jesus was the Son of God. He made that proclamation before. And yet, when Jesus was arrested and being thrown around the courts, Peter said, I don't know who you're talking about. And yet, in the end, Peter also turned around and lived and died preaching the Word. Paul came into understanding of who Christ was in relationship to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And when that happened, he became the missionary to the Gentiles. These are all people that, when they encountered God, found that life had a different meaning. That life was worth living because of Him. Life was going to be different. Life was going to be because of God. Now, Abraham was known as the friend of God. Um, so he had trust, faith, and belief. It reminds me of the, that, that trust game where let's say you're standing on a chair and you're told to fall backwards into the arms of a group of people. Or maybe just one. If that's a family member, a friend, someone effectively that you trust, that you have faith in, someone that you believe, will catch you. That's the kind of relationship that we're talking about. You don't tend to have trust and faith or belief when you don't know that person. If it's a random stranger off the street, you're going to be more hesitant about falling backwards into their arms. So it is essential, in fact, perhaps, that a good relationship is what builds up trust. A good relationship builds up faith. A good relationship builds up belief. So in our lives, as we come to know God, and we know God more and more each and every day, our faith in Him should grow. Our trust in Him should grow. Remember back with Abraham or any of the others. Their faith wavered. Their faith struggled. But even logically, they could reason that God was going to be trustworthy. And so ultimately, they placed their faith in Him. Now, what, why does God care about His trustworthiness or faithfulness? It's about God's honor. If He's honorable, He will be faithful. He must be trustworthy. My question to you then is, are you willing to start putting your trust in God? Are you willing to trust that God has your best interests at heart? Do you want to have that right relationship with God?
Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for who You are, Your trustworthiness, Your honorable self. Lord, we pray that in our lives that we will come to know You and to know You better each and every day and that we will put more and more faith in You and follow You in everything that You command us to do. So, Lord, we pray that You will just bless us and give us true faith in You. In Jesus' name, Amen.